I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Neil. He has depression. Let's talk about it. Well, this uh, is going to be fun. We're talking with Neil Kelders all the way over in Cyprus, um, where it is humid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the extent of our knowledge. It's a good old, good old weather talk before the, before the conversation rolled. Um, uh, Neil, uh, very excited to chat with you today. Um, I know we're going to be talking about uh, depression and, and mental health, uh, something that we have spoken to at length over the last seven years of doing this show, and uh, we just can't get enough of it. We just, we just, we, we're, it doesn't get old, enough. you know? It's it never just gets old. constantly something that we want to be talking about. I think because there's always something, there's always something to learn. Yes. Because yeah. it's all, because I think it's, it's so, sub, it's, it's so subjective. Yeah. I mean, obviously you can like, you can wrap it with these like broad terms, but it's so subjective as yeah. to like the person that's experiencing it and the way people relate to it. So I think you're always learning yeah. something. And we're also not out of the woods yet when it comes to talking about mental health. Um, you know, especially, especially, um, not to, not to like genderfy it, but like, especially with talking about mental health, uh, with men, um, you know, it was like only recently we had, um, UFC fighter, Patty Pimblett, won a fight in his post-fight interview, gave this like heart-wrenching sort of um, spiel to to the crowd and the and and the viewers at home about uh, about the importance of like talking about your emotions uh, mm-hmm. after after yeah. the sad loss of a very close friend of his. So uh, again, just like so happy to have you here, Neil, to talk about uh, your experience with mental health. But before we get into it all, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. um, First of all, I'll just say I'm Neil. I'm from Ireland. And uh, sorry if I speak quickly at times about a subject I'm passionate about. And if I keep on going, but sure, look, I'm Irish. That's us. That's how we're allowed (laughs) to do that. Um, And yeah, so my area of work thankfully is my passion is mental health and well-being something i struggled for for over 21 years behind a mask and this is what we'll probably talk about and get into um so i lived it alone um confused lost empty lonely um and there's a story in 2014 i spoke for the first time I, i still don't really know why to someone and that set me on the road to where i am here in front of you guys today um so Part of my journey as I moved to Cyprus, uh, which was a big decision for me because it's in my newfound confidence, my newfound life, and I, my newfound want to live. And uh, so now my journey continues and I'm excited that I have a future. Uh, I can see a future. So that is, and anybody going through depression or suicidal ideation would understand what I'm saying, that you don't see a way out and you don't see a way forward. Mm-hmm. But I do. 
so um, my goal is to provide hope for others as well. So in my in my uh, I've got I've got some like limited limited and mild experience with <clears throat> anxiety and depression, and in that experience, I. I I felt very it, it stood out to me once once the experience started to pass or I guess once I started to transition away from it it was really only in that in in hindsight that I could really recognize what I was experiencing it, I mean inside of the experience it was it felt next to impossible to really know or to wrap my head around it so in so 2014 you start you you kind of have a conversation that sets you on a new path and looking back on your experience up until that point you know where does where where does this start for you are you know are there are there catalysts that that you know of um like environments that that sort of supported what what was what was the whole what was your experience with uh with yeah. with it and that's a great point initially is that once you're in it, the eye of the storm, it's not the place to try to answer questions. I think you need to self-care yourself out of it. That's that's the first step. And looking back now, yes, I can explore that, but you don't do that straight away because, you know, the talking I did, I did it once, but I believed I couldn't do it again. Mm. I did it the first time. Because, you know, I use my get out of jail card. No one else wants to hear me go negative, negative, negative all the time. And I would say, trust me, those people that love you will always want to hear what you have to say rather than never be able to hear what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I eventually, looking back on it, I went to get help, seek help for others, not for me. So then I had to overcome that to, to buy into it, to, to realize that I have to accept it. Acceptance is the biggest thing, number one. But looking back on it, I state, and in my book as well, I state this, the year, the years I focus on are from 15 to kind of 36, okay? Mm-hmm. 21 years behind the mask, I say. So my teenage years was first when I sensed it. I remember writing on my desk as I was supposed to study, as my mother knocked on the door, study for your exams. I wasn't studying, but I was writing suicide and a science book that we had at 15 years of age. And I, I remember this, and I had that feeling, that constant thought process, not once a day, countless times a day. And I wonder why at that age, why did I have this? And something I didn't want to admit, our father left us. So when I kind of delved into it, I didn't want to go into the trauma, but I wanted to skirt around the trauma to see what learnings I could get. And the biggest one was rejection. So my father left me, he rejected me. He didn't want me. So then other people don't want me, right? Mm. You know, what's the point in pushing myself out there? Keep myself closed so I can never be rejected again. You keep yourself closed. We're social beings. That's what life, longevity, sustainability in life is about connecting with other people. Me, I will say even more so than exercise nearly. You know, it's about connecting. And I wasn't connecting that much with people. I wasn't showing my true self with my family and friends. And it was the fear of this rejection. Mm. And then believing, well, if he rejected me, what was the reasoning behind this? Mm. I'm not a person you want to be around. I don't fit in. You know, I'm different. Why can't I just be normal? And it spirals and it spirals and it spirals. And you tell yourselves these narratives 
constantly. So the, the rejection would have been the biggest, the biggest thing. Then throughout my life, I've had friends, unfortunately, that have passed away through different circumstances, and two of them through uh, taking their own lives as well, and others through like car crashes and things. But those problems you don't realize, they all build up, they all add. Mm. Yeah. And we don't do anything to release it. Yeah, We don't. It's like scar so, tissue building mm-hmm, on itself. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, so I always, that when I work with people now, it's about releasing even the little traumas every day. Even if you don't think there's traumas, just release, 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 because that will help you. Whereas I had this buildup of over 21 years behind the mat. And then I had the energy of being this outgoing guy, one of the lads, as we say, moving party, you know, playing sports, everything. That's exhausting too. Mm-hmm. So this pretend life, this rejection, these traumas definitely added up. You know, mm. you know. It's I was reading something yesterday, and I don't know if you, I don't know if you, um, uh, something you said there kind of jogged my memory on it, and I don't know if you relate to this at all. Um, but it was a study. It was a meta-analysis of many studies done by uh, a group of psychology researchers at um, the University of Bristol, and it was. Um, it was looking at the connection between um, what they called insecure attachments. Mm. Um, so sort of like sort of like unhealthy relationships, not necessarily that they are unhealthy that you are that you have a relationship with that person. It's kind of just like the way that the relationship has formed or the the two-way street of the of the relationship is, uh, has uh, has some cracks in it. And it was a lot to do with it was a lot to do with parents and children. But it was a connection between what they called insecure attachments and um, and what was it called negativity uh, negative negative attribution bias, which is this function, this social function, where when some when somebody does something that we immediately n- negatively attribute it to they are doing something to me. Mm-hmm. So, so the example that they kind of went back to was like, you make a phone call and the person doesn't pick up and you, and your initial thing is like, yeah. they're avoiding me. It's because of this. Yeah. It's because, and really it was like, you know, they were in the hospital, you know, taking care of their mother yeah. or what, or whatever. It, yeah. it has nothing to do, but then we put this negative attribution onto these people. And it was this connection between, um, <laughs> these two relationships that we, so the relationships that we have with our family, a lot of the time and how we perceive other people's behavior in relation to us mm-hmm. and how that ends up building a lot of like anxiety and depression um, yeah. in us as a society when we think that yeah. way. Especially like, like attachment style, the, like the theory of attachment style, there, there's like, there's four different attachment styles. There's anxious, avoidant, disorganized, and secure. Um, and these attachment styles, they develop in early childhood. But those attachment styles, as they develop, you know, us as adults, when we cr- when we form relationships like intimate relationships or rom- romantic relationships, we oftentimes will form a relationship with someone who has either the same attachment style or a different attachment style. And there's like uh, the same attachment style isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, different attachment styles aren't necessarily a good thing. It just means that you know each attachment style coming together are going to, regardless of whether or not they're the same or different, are going to cause um disruption in mm-hmm. the relationship 
mm-hmm. based on the attachment style that you have formed mm-hmm. over your the span of your life. Mm-hmm. Attachment style theory is super, super interesting. It's, it's something I, we should talk about. I reached this. out to the author of the study yeah. to, to yeah. try and get them on the show. But yeah, we've talked about it a lot on on Turn Me On. Um, Neil, I one thing that I'm I'm kind of curious about. Um, you know, you, you you had sort of mentioned, and 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 correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, in hindsight, looking back at your life. Um, you know, just recently we spoke to Dr. Gabor Mate and we were talking a lot about um, mental health and uh, in particular we were talking about trauma and the way that trauma shows up in, in our lives um, deep, deep, deep down into, into our life um, uh, after childhood and into adulthood. Um, and one of the things I picked up there that you were saying was that, um, you know, this all stems from this trauma of uh, the relationship that you had with your father or your father sort of, uh, you know, being vacant, not being a part of your life. And that was the trauma that sort of kickstarted this journey for you in, in your mental health struggles. Um, is, is that something that you came to the realization, you know, 21 years after struggling and looking back um, and, and sort of figuring out, oh, oh, this is, this is likely the root cause. Or was that something that you sort of generally had an idea of, um, without, without really having to do much digging or, or was it not until you actually started having the conversations about yourself and your mental health that you really piece those two things together? Um, so it's a bit, it's a trauma when a father leaves and you're a 10 year old boy and you see all your friends with their fathers going to like, we used to play Gaelic football, Irish footballs watching and I never had that. So that plays in your mind. So all the way through, you, you do believe this, but you block it because there's a hate there now. There's a hate for that person. You know, you, you don't want to admit that that person has this hold over you, that they're the cause of this. I tried to push him away that he had nothing, no meaning in my life. It, so I think all the way through, I had a sense that this was a spark. This was one of the a reason behind it. But I analyze a lot. I'm, I'm very good at analyzing things, which is can be a downfall as well for depression and anxiety. But it was afterwards. I, I knew it was part, but I still didn't want to open myself up to the idea to explore, to see how it did impact me. Mm. Eventually I did. And I had to because... And you don't have to go deep into it, but you just have to find out what what is the issue. Okay, and him leaving, what was it for me? For someone else, it could be maybe not rejection. It could be some other issue. But for me, I think it was a rejection that everybody else had this family, had this father, you know, to do things with their son, but I didn't have that. And I like I attribute to a Sunday being lonely because my friends were off at their fathers and I was left at home bored. You know, so the Sundays then would have been a a hard day for me, a hard weekend, and and they were challenges I had to look at. And once I opened myself up to that, all these other things started coming to the fore. That then I was able to address one at a time. So it was really afterwards I had to be open to accept it and explore it. So afterwards, really, once I wasn't, once I was a little bit. Once I was kind of more looking after myself and managing my depression and anxiety, I will never say I overcome it because I'm still in the trenches at times, but I'm damn able to manage and, and effectively manage it. That's mm. that's the hope. Mm. Um, so it was definitely once I was able to do that, then I was able to explore because a lot of the time when we're in it, we ask why me 
and when is it going to end? So if you focus on those two questions, you can't focus on helping yourself because, mm-hmm. and I hate saying this word, but it is, it's it's kind of, you're like in the victim mode in a sense. And I realized that for myself, that I needed to steer away from those questions and focus on moving forward, taking action. And those questions don't matter anymore. They don't mm-hmm. matter anymore. If I'm in it, I can bring myself out of it. That's life, you know? And um, so, yeah, it was afterwards, I think, for a long-winded answer to, to, to bring myself to the realization that that was a major part. Was it a, was the, was it a transition from being from the, the, this 15 year old version of you, you know, with suicidal ideation <laughs> as you're, as you're studying into this sort of like sports focused party with the guys version of you? Was it a transition from, was, was this, was the, was that kind of sports um, oriented uh, partying version of you? Was that like a different manifest? Was that just a different manifestation of the uh, of your of your mental health and and the the desire, whether it's conscious or subconscious, to to put that mask on? Like, was it just a different mask? Oh, you totally saw a mask for every occasion. Yeah, without yeah. question. So. That's the first thing I explain in my book is what the mask is straight away. And mm. people are shocked by that. And I thought it was a natural thing that people would understand this. When you put on, so it's exhausting to put on, but in every situation. And the more I can be more outgoing, the class clown, the more I can be the sporty guy and the social guy at the night out, the less you're going to think I'm the guy struggling. Mm-hmm. So that mask is thicker. It's deeper. Yeah. It's, so you'll never guess. Yeah. Masking is fucking crazy. Yeah. Like it's, you know, I've I've had some people close to me in my life who who struggle pretty pretty hard with their mental health, and you know, it's not until you get really close that you start to recognize the masking um, that's going on, and and it's it's really wild how effective we can be at masking what's going on in in our lives, um, uh, and not know that you're masking. And not even really, yeah, exactly. Like, not even really recognize it. Um, can you, like, Neil, can, for people at home right now listening that maybe have never heard this term before, like masking or, or wearing a mask uh, when it comes to mental health, like, what is that? Um, what is that mechanism? What's going on there? And, and like, how do people, how, do you, how did you kind of utilize that in your, your sort of upbringing and trying to hide the fact that you were really struggling deep down? So, I suppose, just say, for example, you guys, uh, I don't know anything about your personal lives, but you wake up in the morning and you get out of bed. For me to get wake up in the morning and drag myself out of bed is a massive deal. You know, before I stand in front of you for my day, I'm like 10 feet under and I'm dragging. I, I have to get myself ready. People put on their makeup, get clothes on. I have to try and put this front on in front of you. So the energy before I ever leave my house to do that, it is it's just incredible. It's consuming. It's it's energy sapping. So the mask is, I would say, okay, I used to have a fitness business, so I have to be in front of clients and motivate them. Mm. So I'd have to be, yeah, guys, let's go. We can do this. And after each session, I would just be, and I'd have to bring myself up again. So the mask is you still trying to be the best for the people you're in front of, still trying to show that you can be the motivator and the leader. In a sense, we preach to people, but Inside, we can't do their sons. Okay? So the mask is making sure I can stand in front of whatever that 
of my days to be my family. I didn't want my mother to worry. I didn't want to be another uh, hindrance to her. You know, she has enough going on. I have to wear a mask. I don't want to be the friend that's talking negatively, negatively all the time and bringing down the conversations. Up comes the mask. Mm. You know, the sports team, I don't want to be the, the weakest link. You know, up comes the mask. But I left it out in other ways. I got angry. I drank a lot, you know. Um, in Ireland, we go out for pints and it's been drinking, but I realized it clicked at me. Jeez, I got to watch this, man. You know, this is good. I could go out for three days drinking because I didn't want to face my reality at home mm -hmm. when that mask is lowered when like and then you're not sleeping okay so you're not sleeping either. I used to sleep for 45 minutes a night and the 45 minutes of course would be the 45 minutes before I have to get up for, for work or to start my day so you're literally shaking before you get up and time and again I, I, I the mask for me was calling people that I couldn't go to meetings that day and I'd stay in bed for three days with my headphones on darkness away from the world so that was one way the mask could be the other way is out the mask in public in different situations making sure nobody can see that you're struggling with something that's mm -hmm. the key mm -hmm. that and, is the key and it, it, it's it, it's a it's such a vicious cycle because of how how because relationships are so important and when you are when you are unable again consciously or subconsciously unable to form like really genuine and authentic relationships because you are trying to be a version of you or a or or a completely made up version of you that you believe needs to be seen by the people around you then that is affecting the relationships that you form, which is then affecting your mental health in return because you're mm -hmm. because you can't really forge really great or an authentic relationships in that way, or it's very or it's very challenging to do that. Yeah. Um, like I, I just I relate to the I relate to masking in in a, in a huge way, especially in relation to sports. Not that I did never I loved sports, I loved competing, um, and uh, I I really did love that, but I I sort of used sports as a way to as a way to try and put forward this <laughs> idea of this facade of myself that was that I felt other people would should see me as or that I maybe wanted people to see me as rather than you know it's like I I I genuinely loved it I genuinely loved do, but it it manifested in this way that only in hindsight as I got into my early 20s I went oh wow I was like really trying to put something on for other people. And I would have yeah. been better at sports and I would have been better at with my friends if I had just been yourself, been myself, yeah. but you really, but at the time, no idea, yeah. zero clue that yeah. I was doing. Well, that. The, I remember that time when we were that young and it, there was a weird, there was a weird thing. Cause like you're, you just, you always spoke with an Irish accent. It was horrible. <laughs> it was fucking horrible. And, and you would tell us you were from, from Ireland. Can I just you, wanted everybody. Do the, what was the accent? Do, do it, do it, do it for Neil. Yeah. <laughs> try it, it, uh, it like it, just go back to those days i can't it's a uh, i've totally it's totally gone I, I, it's I, I like you, you would always just be like ha, ta, 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 ta. and I was, I was like wow 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 no, jeremy and i knew that wasn't no, you no jeremy's like, lying jeremy's the accent jeremy's the accent guy <laughs> I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. So one of the big reasons why we're here talking today is that on the uh, 23rd of November, um, you've got a book coming out called The Other Side, A Memoir of Hope in the Midst of Depression. Um, uh, big deal writing a book. Uh, that's, so first of all, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, huge accomplishment. Um, what, uh, what was the catalyst to, to writing the book? Um, you know, you've gone, through, you've gone through this like 21-year process of of hiding and masking and, and, and trying to like deal with, with depression coming on the other side of that. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that there was some sort of break. There was some sort of like, uh, you know, revelation, um, after that 21 year period. So, so what was like, at what point were you like, you know what, fuck it. I'm going <laughs> to write an entire book about, about um. this process. So just to say that I still I still go through stuff. The other side is me, Manny, as I was saying earlier, is, is really getting a stronger hold of it. And it doesn't dictate it. I dictate it now. You yeah. know, that's what I like to say. Um, I always love being creative, writing. Uh, I, uh, one of the first things I went into when I started to turn my life around was do a bit of acting and improv comedy and stuff like that. And really push myself out boundaries and meet new people and meet my people. So writing I up was one of the tools I actually used to process my thoughts, my negative thoughts, my anxiety, etc., things like that. The writing wasn't the hardest part. So I said, I always, like, when I revealed about my mental health, I released a blog first. Mm. And I, I put it as my name, Neil Kelders, because I said, I'm never going to wear a mask again. What you see is what you get. This is me. Okay. So I put my name out there. I said, okay, I want people to tell my story. And in the book, it's really raw and honest and there's things nobody knew and, and I, I'm putting it out there. But I always wanted to write something, to share something. because, And if everybody says, I want to help others, but I do because, you know, I know what it's like to live your life and not want to live. To see the light at the end of the tunnel, but that light is death, nothing else. You want that. You know, you, you're so exhausted, you see no other way out because you believe you have um, looked at every option, but you haven't, okay? You're exhausted, and I, I know people are going through this, and I want to be open and honest, and I want to connect with you in certain ways. So I was lucky enough to be asked to do talks and then started working in that area and work with companies, and I, I noticed that my stories and my the way I presented things across to people was resonating and people would come up to me. My first talk was in my hometown in a hotel and I had a queue for an hour and a half afterwards. So I knew something was there that if I can tell stories, bring people off with a bit of a cheeky tone to it, that I can connect with more people, not just those suffering, but those unable to understand what people go through. Mm. And the writing is that it's, 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 it's not a book where you, you, I, we all have those motivational books where we have them in a, on the back shelf and they're there for <laughs> life. I, I, I didn't want that anymore. I want my book to, and there's meals, notes, sections. That I'm talking to you conversational, like that you're in front of me, like now. That's the way the book is. I'm giving you meals now, certain exercises to do as you go. So you're, you're starting your process straight away before you close that book. You go back to that book. That's what I want. 
I don't want you to just read a book for the sake of it. I want you to start your journey and let me help you, guide you. And that's the key. And that's what I would have loved because I feel a lot of people, no disrespect to anybody, a lot of people talk from a platform that they've overcome their mental health problems. And when I used to see those people, it disconnected me mm. straight away because you, you fair play to you, you're, you've done it, that's great, but I'm down here, dude. I'm struggling. I, I can't see the light, the, the connection, the dots. Mm. So I want you to realize that you're in it. Who cares? Let's go. Let's start it now. It's up to you. Because if you change, nothing, nothing changes. And do something. And to do something now is to read the book and start doing things. That's my thought process. Mm. That's what I wanted to do. So, okay, okay. So with that then, I'm I'm dying to know what was the... What was the, 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 the time that you spoke out for the very first time? You know, like after 21 years of, of suffering, do, can you recall like the, yeah. the, the moment that you finally just like shed your armor, took off your mask and just like vulnerability through the roof and just spoke to someone? Yeah. Can I, can I tell you the story the way I, 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 I word it? Is that yeah. Okay? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so... I used to live in Dublin and a half for 10 years before I moved to Cyprus. And my brother and his family lived there and his four kids and we were really close. So one morning I was calling to my brother's house. My sister in law was home. She was going to make me a coffee. So I went in, knocked on the door, went in, and as I'm in the house, I smell a coffee. And as you go into their kitchen, they have these big double doors behind and it leads out to the backyard where they, I used to play with the kids, which was actually an escape for me. So when I was going through a lot of traumas, I was on the trampoline or playing basketball or football or whatever. Mm. Because when you're with kids, you can't but lose yourself, right? You can't but be in that moment. Mm -hmm. So my sister-in-law's making um, coffee and I was struggling. I was really struggling. I was, this was, I've done a video that says time to close my eyes to the world. It was 16th of March, the day before St. Patrick's Day. So everybody's out planning, celebrating. And I was calm and I made a video in the darkness of my car and I said, it's, it's, I'm, I'm happy with my, my, my decision. So this is a, this is around a week or so after that time or a few weeks after. So I'm still struggling really badly. And I just walk in, I'm standing there and I just say, I can't do this anymore. And my sister and I was like, what, like work or, you know, nobody knows anything. Right. So she's like work. And I said, no. I have to die. And that's what I said straight out. Mm. And she's like, holy shit, what, what? So I can just imagine the impact that had, you know, that on her. So she's there, what? And I said, but I knew straight away that I needed to kind of explain it to her. So her four kids, my two nieces, my two nephews, very close since they were young. And I have a great relationship. And I said, look, even though I know that, so they're making their own names, right? Sersha, Kriva, Patrick, even though I know Sersha, will never uh, give me that hug again or never text me or never uh, tell me about her, um, say, 21st or whatever it is, I have to go. And then I went down to Cueva, even though she won't be able to do her gymnastics moves on me and, and things like that. And I associated it and I said, I have to go. And then I said, Patrick, even though he won't draw pictures about me anymore or show me his muscles when we're doing a bit of workouts, I have to go. And then Liam even though he won't sit, be able to sit with me and my brother to watch Liverpool football games, there'll be an empty seat and I know that they'll, they'll miss me. I have to go. So what I was trying to tell her was that the want to die was so extreme. I know the pain and suffering I'm going to cause these kids and mm. you. The want to die is far greater. 
because I'm just that exhausted. And she's like, and I'll tell you, do you know what the funny thing is? They say talking works and it does, right? The minute I spoke, it was like weight off my shoulders. I was like, uh, wow. And this is what I said. Jeez. Okay, that's great. I'm going to go away. Now she's like, uh, what? <laughs> no, what? Yeah, no. <laughs> I said, no, in Ireland we'd be saying, I'm grand. Sure, I'm grand. Like, and she said, and uh, so I had to go <laughs> to do something. And she said, Neil, no, geez, no. And I said, look, listen, I'll swear I'll come back straight away. I'll be gone half hour. And then as I was leaving, don't tell my brother, right? As in, yeah, don't tell my brother. She's mm. 10 years older. So I left and I came back and it's, I came back to the house and they had this big black door with a window, a circular window in the middle. So I knocked on the door. So this is like my depression facing me and my savior coming. And I knocked on the door and who walks towards it? It's my brother. And I said, oh no, here we go. Because family sometimes aren't the best people to tell because we love each other so much that we want to direct and physically do everything for that person. Come on, I ran it under control. I've got the plan. When we don't need that. I didn't need that right now. I just needed someone to actively listen to me. So I was there, oh God, here we go. He opened the door. And this is probably the greatest moment of my life. And so he just still had his jacket on. He just came straight from his office and he brought me in and he hugged me. Mm. And he gave me that hug when you're a kid, when your mom or your dad would hug you and you just snuggle up and feel safe. And I thought in my head, maybe, maybe there's a chance. He didn't say anything. He just hugged me and we don't hug. We don't, we don't hug. And it was great. It was like, I was so blocked up. I never cried anymore. I, you know, no emotion came out. And that was the first time I felt okay. So we just went to sat down and there's a place in Ireland called Pieta House where um, they look after uh, people with you know, suicidal ideation or, or self-harm. And he said, look, I just called them. And he said, uh, let's go. And I said, no, no, you know, I'm fine now. It's grand. Everything's cool. And he said, come on, I'll go with you. We'll just see. And uh, so we drove there. And it's, it's, it's weird. So when you expect to go to somewhere like this, in my thought was it would be under the cover of darkness, you know, or the mm. tunnels, tunnels so nobody can see you because this is mental health, man. No, yeah, this is crazy stuff. No one can see this. But you rock up to a house, you ring the doorbell, you go to a reception. Hi, my name's Eve. You sit down with other people in a reception. They ask you, do you want a cup of tea? And you're like, uh, do you not know I'm struggling here? Like, you know? And it's so normalized. And of course it is. It's like going to a doctor's. You know, that's mm. the way it should be. And that stood out for me. And what else stood out for me is that all the young people I saw there, those teenagers, it was just incredible. And I was there to myself, how can these people, they're 15 years of age, how can you have these worries? But of course, that was me mm. 20 years before. So that was it. We went in and I didn't buy into the process that I alluded to earlier. It was for them. But eventually I found the right counselor for me after one, two, three counselors and that's one thing i'd like to say is like counselors are people psychiatrists are people you may not check with the first you find the one that works for you it's like a fitness trainer it's like whatever you find the one that resonates works with you and i found one eventually and oh my gosh she worked with me brilliantly mm. and she made me think and if i had something to say she would think about it and come back with answers next week if she didn't know it that was amazing but then i had that was my first time talking and i was doing a bit of counseling but I didn't talk again. I remember one time, two weeks after, I was really low. My brother kind of said, you know, so now they're noticing you a bit more. 
are you okay? And I said, yeah, perfect. And I was bang. Three days after that, I was in bed again. But again, not letting anybody know because, mm. you know, I lived in my own, so no one had to know. And that was it. Yeah, so that was my kind of story the first time. Um, speaking, I just want to say, like, it's easy for us to tell people to talk and it is the most difficult thing you will ever do. Mm. All right? And it's it's difficult because, first of all, you're telling someone that probably doesn't understand what you're going through. You're trying to get that across what, what the feeling is. They may not understand, but also you don't understand yourself really what you're going through. So it's a very hard thing to communicate. And if anybody is trying to help someone, you know, you don't have to understand. You don't have to understand. You just have to listen. You know, just have to listen to them and ask them, are they okay? Don't be afraid to ask, are you okay? Are you suicidal? You're not putting any of these struggles or bad thoughts in someone's head. They're already there. Believe you me, they're yeah. already there. But if you don't ask those questions, you don't know. So if you feel unsure about something, you ask them the questions. And talking isn't as easy as people think, but you can talk in many ways. You can send an email, you can write to yourself, you can you know, do a video, there's different things you can do, okay? But do something, and I would recommend as highly talking is, is um, and talk again and again and again, never stop. What is your perspective on, <clears throat> thank you for that, by the way, that was really great. Um, what is your perspective on, on and this is gonna. I know this. I know that there's gonna be some of a pretty wide variation um, for this, depending on the person. But for for the people that you talk to, and especially I think when it comes to like really close friends and family, when you are when when you end up having that conversation and 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 getting it off your shoulders that you are having these you know really really hard struggles mentally and that you know suicide is something that you're that you're thinking about and. And because my my initial thought is that it can be really easy for somebody to want to do way too much, to be to 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 overwhelm somebody who talks to them about suicide because they're so worried that you know as soon as you leave their sight that you could you know you could be dead and then that and that it could be their fault or that that they weren't there for you or and so how. How, what's your perspective on somebody receiving this, this information from, from somebody that, that they love and, and, and in terms of managing that and being, and, and being effective with how they kind of nurture that conversation? First of all, I'll start off at, uh, from the highest point, I suppose, is parents. I've dealt with some parents and they've asked me this. First of all, you can never blame yourself. You can't blame yourself. You do what you know how to do, okay? Because trust me, when it's in our head, when it's there, we have one way of thinking, you know, and this has been ingrained, this was ingrained in my head for over 21 years, right? So I have a way, I know me best. So don't, you can never blame yourself for anything that happens. Trust me, you can't. The thing is, the first thing, if you are, you want to be there for someone is you have to be comfortable. You have to be comfortable first, because if you're not, this will play in the conversation and it will, they'll sense it, the other person will sense it. And once you're comfortable, just find a setting somewhere, you know, where you can be a little bit intimate, have a coffee and just ask them, are you OK? What I what I like to do myself is I like to share a little bit about myself. 
So you could share that you've been stressed or you've been, you know, you don't have to go into much detail, but what you're doing is you're connecting with them. So they're saying, wow, so this person, you know, has a few issues as well, not just me. And then they may share. But a lot of the time, and again, I'll say they are saying, a lot of people will say they're grand. And they'll say they're grand because they're not ready to talk. But what the, you will leave them with is that they know now someone has noticed them, that they're they're here in front of you because we feel like we're never noticed. We don't want to be noticed a lot of the time, but yet we want to be noticed, okay? Mm-hmm. And so they may not talk to you, but you never know they may talk to someone else, okay? What you can't do is you have to speak to them, you have to listen to them. And what I do is I listen to a person and I can't, I'll give the remarks like, uh-huh, yes, as, and show them that I'm actively listening. And let them speak, don't interrupt them. It's not about you, it's about them. This is all about them. You're just facilitating them listening. As I said on the day my brother was there, he didn't speak, he helped me and he listened to me. That was the key. Because if he started to give me orders, let's do this, it would have switched me off. And I would have been reluctant to speak again. So just listen and then uh, repeat one or two things that they've said just to get a better understanding if you don't understand. Okay. And then what I'd say, what do you think, you know, get a sense of where they're at. And if they say, you know, would you like me to help you talk to family or would you like to, you know, for me to go to a doctor with you and see what they say. And if they say no, that's okay. Because if you don't think they're suicidal, then that's, you know, it's their step. But if you feel it's a little bit more than that, then I don't think you can keep it to yourself. You will have to share something with someone and try to get them on board with that to share with someone they're comfortable with. But again, never put yourself under pressure. Be comfortable. Look after yourself as well, because this is a lot, because I'm with people now. And the biggest thing I had to be aware of was that I can't take their trauma onto me. If that does, that will drive me down. And that then we're no, I'm no use for anyone. And saying to someone helping, you're not. So make sure you're comfortable doing it. And then just listen to them. Listening mm-hmm. is a big thing. It must be a fine line. It must be a fine line when, when, when receiving information that you know that you can't keep to yourself because I'm sure that there's instances and situations where people are asking somebody that they're talking to divulging like, you know, suicidal ideation and, and asking for that not to be shared and, and, and sort of how, like how to, how to walk that line of not making somebody feel like you are breaking their trust, but also, and and at the same time, you know, doing, you know, taking on the responsibility of going, you know, this is really serious. Yeah. We need more than just, there needs to be j- more than just me that's in the know about this, you know, really serious situation that you're dealing with. Mm. Yeah, and I, I'll give you a quick example. I, I was uh, brought in to speak to a school in, uh, in Ireland, and uh, so I did the talk, and it was great, and afterwards I received an email. And I didn't see it until a bit, it was Friday, so I didn't see it until I think Saturday evening, I said, oh my God, this person's crying for help. So I emailed and I tried to get the camera down and get the number and there were no schools or anything. So a teacher brought me in. I, that was my contact, but I had no school. So I actually rang that person myself and they're, they're, they're minor. I said, I, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to do. So I called the person and we chatted and I said, you know, the first thing I said to her, I'm proud of you. I'm so proud of you because it took me 21 years to do this and you've done it now. Mm-hmm. So you're 21 years ahead of me. So I just tried to, to listen to her. Then I said, I'm going to have to 
try to connect with someone around you. I'm going to connect it to teach. Is that okay? And she goes, uh, I said, look, I have to do this just to make sure everything's fine and that everybody's aware. So I connected with the teacher, had a chat, and then uh, the teacher connected with the parents. Called the parents, uh, the mother, and the mother said, no, they're fine. They're here beside me. There's nothing wrong. And this is the mask again, right? And mm. uh, literally, after calling me, so it was in a day, within the hour, so then I get a call from the young person saying, why did you do that? And I explained again, I needed to because the email was so serious that it was real concern for me. And I'm not in the same location as you, so I can't do anything else but do this. And I need to connect. And uh, the teacher needed to connect just to make sure. So then I got a, and it calmed the young person down. They were fine. Then I said, is there someone within your family? Because the parents weren't getting it, I don't think I didn't yeah, know. Yeah. And luckily, um, the person had a, an older brother in their 20s and came on the phone to me and we chatted. And he had experiences with friends. So he was a great resource. He was able to bring her for food and there, and she had someone to connect with. Mm-hmm. So in that little instance, she now had a person right next to her that she didn't realize she could, she could open up to was her brother, yeah. which I thought was amazing. So what I did, I made that decision. I called someone on radio. I, I think this, it's life is more important for me than anything else. Yeah. And I will make sure that, that that person is still around. So you make that call. You have that good feeling. You, you understand. We all will, you know? Yeah. One thing that like, and this sort of, this kind of ties into what you just talked about there, you know, m- mental health is, is, um, it's tricky because it's it's not like a broken arm, right? Like you see a broken arm, very obvious. You can see it. You can most certainly fucking feel it. Um, <laughs> at least you hope so. Um, and and it's there. There's an obvious element to to something that is physical. That's that's wrong with us. Mental health is is quite different in that it's very easily hidden through masking. Um, you know whether that's like purposeful hiding to, to, you know, avoid conversations that you're not ready to have or whatnot. But there's also, there's also like an element to mental health being hidden where the person suffering might not even be really aware that they're suffering. Um, and, and, and in particular, I feel like definitely like, or like when, you know, the onset of something like depression, um, where it's, you know, it's early days, you're not really like, you know, something's up, but you're not really fully cognizant of the fact that like, oh, this is fucking depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so to that point, like, do you, do you have any examples or, or, um, any, any ideas of like what those signs might be that, you know, say someone's listening at home and, and this conversation's really kind of sparking something for them. Um, what are some like, things to look out for in your own personal life that might be a sign that there's something brewing or that, that there's something wrong that might not come to front of mind for someone who is, is going through it in that moment. Yeah. You, you made a good point there. I think, I think we know something's not right, but we can't put our finger on it or we don't understand it's depression until maybe we hear someone else speaking about it and go, Oh, okay. Mm. There you go. Um, so it can be a lot of things like for me 
I just felt I, 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 I felt uh, out of place in life. And I think I'm very much, we live in a should society. And I didn't want that. I didn't want my nine to five. I didn't like school. I loved learning, but I didn't like school. But I had to go along that train line with everybody else. I did two degrees in college. I couldn't find myself. Nine years in college, dude. You know what I mean? Like it's so a big thing I, I find with people that a lot of people are starting to struggle when they're transitioning in their life. Mm. So from school to college, it's very comfortable in school. Uh oh, big leap to college. Am I doing the right thing after this for the rest of my life? Oh my god, geez, what what am I gonna do? Um, if it's the college to work, again, it's a big transition. Oh, I've got to stay in this job for the rest of my life. This is, this is me. This is, oh, i got to get married now. So the should society is is kicking us forward. And a lot of people I work with are at different transitions along that. So they're not, for me then, they're not, they don't know their values. And for me, I, I go for top five values. What are my values? They change all the time. But I answer my question, I question myself on my values. So, for example, moving to Cyprus, I was empty in Ireland. I was fine to a certain time, but something wasn't right then. It wasn't sitting right with me. I wasn't feeling right. I could feel myself going backwards. Mm. So I decided I needed a, what did I need to do? I needed a move. I needed a move. I needed a transition. And my area of work was the same. So I did a lot of work on myself to bring myself to a certain level with my mental health. And I bring it to the maintenance stage. And that maintenance stage was important for a certain period of time. But then I was just stuck in that area and it was my comfort zone. And that comfort zone started to eat away at me and I started to fall backwards again. I had to recognize this. So what you have to do, symptoms are like, like signs and symptoms, you know, is it as easy as that? It's, I would say you need to evaluate your life as you go along, where you're at in your life. Like, are you happy in a certain situation? I would look at your clients, your family. I would do little scores on it, you know, just saying, just evaluate, is my health good? Am I happy? Can I do something about it? Can I change something? Can I add a habit? My family situation, am I happy Am I happy with my marriage or with kids or am I happy being single? Again, look at it and see, is there something you can do to change it? We don't evaluate our lives where we're at. We just continuously move on automatic. We don't enter each day with an intention. We move with autom- automatic. So my intention here with you guys is to make sure you know my story really well and that I made an impact. That that was my intention. So everything I do, I, I try to do with intention. But then again, when things are like that, when you when you find that maybe some things like work or it, life is boring, if you find life boring, that's a big key. Mm-hmm. Even though you're active doing things, nothing, nothing, nothing you can think of will excite you. You know, I remember when I was 16 and this is how I kind of clicked really that I had depression. I was 15. I was watching TV morning, one of those morning shows in Ireland, kind of they bring someone in. And this man had a very successful business, had a loving wife, great kids, had everything, everything. There was always just something missing. Whatever he achieved, there was always something missing. And that's that's what it was for me. Mm. It always felt like there was something missing. And that's something missing I only found out a few years ago was that I wasn't was living to values with what I wanted to do. It was nearly been dictated by other people. So then I started to feel empty and lonely because all I could see was everybody was going straight forward. They were on the right track, but I was going around in circles like a hamster. I didn't know why was I so different? Why am I like I shouldn't? I just want to be normal. That, that was it. So you start to doubt yourself. So emptiness, loneliness is a massive thing. Not being alone, but loneliness. You can be in a crowd and it can be very dark and lonely. 
And uh, so those little things started to play on me. Then you get frustrated, very much frustrated. You get angry. And I did find myself going, I never thought I had a drink problem, but looking back and I drank to 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 wipe away those uh, thoughts. And then you don't think anything good has happened in your life. You know, you don't think anything good has happened. Of course, plenty of things have happened. Our, our life has happened. And you don't think you have a future. You don't think it's bright. So life is dead. Life is boring. Life is lonely. And these are just feelings and your thoughts continuously feed that. Mm. you know so there's no real I, I would never say you know I would, like yeah it's very subjective but at the end of the day a lot of us would feel the same thing because we, if we didn't I wouldn't resonate with people mm-hmm. and then I wouldn't be able to give people the hope that they can change this so I, I think you know you just got to listen to yourself where you're at in life right now because there's something depression is telling you something anxiety is telling you something I didn't think that for 21 years it was telling me there was something missing in my life and I had to find that. So if you can do a little checking with yourself and a little self-evaluation in the different areas of your life to see can you change something and will that help? That's what I would do. Mm. That's that, that's where your signs and symptoms will lie. Mm. And, and I imagine also, I imagine because because sometimes it can be so hard to be, to be, uh, to, se- to self-analyze in that, in the, in, in the, when you, especially when you are like really in the heat of, of something, it can be challenging to kind of see through the, to, to see through it, to, to recognize, to the, the, the importance of having, of having, um, you know, I guess once you've, I guess this can really only occur once you've had that conversation with somebody and, and somebody or a group of people outside of you are aware of what you're going through on some level that, that, that now other people have a sort of like benchmark for you and can, and can start to recognize some of the, some of the signs and symptoms that you might be exhibiting outwardly that you might not be aware of as the person going through it. But some of your friends now know, okay, when maybe when X, Y, Z starts to occur with, um, Mm -hmm. with their friend, I, that, that, that then serves as a, as a reminder to check in with them and to mm-hmm. and to ask them how they're doing and to ask them if they want to have a conversation or they need to talk or whatever, so that there is um, you know some external support when it can be really challenging to see that for yourself. Yeah, and, and as you said, only by opening up to people will they be aware of that. So, like, if we notice people, we can save lives. If we notice people, and the eyes never lie, the eyes never lie. Trust me on that. Um, I've had pictures taken and see a smile on my face, but geez, the eyes are sad. They're lost. They're empty. And I have this one picture. I was at an acting class and I was looking at a friend of mine who was taking pictures and I asked him for the picture afterwards because I knew what was in my top head. I was lost. I was empty, even though I was doing something I really loved. And only when people understand what you're going through, will they be able to maybe, as you said, link in, connect with you and notice you. Because it might be, oh, geez, he's, he's drinking a little bit too much. Okay, let's bring it. Let's go home. Let's let's go to the movies. Let's do something else. Or he's talking really quickly, really quickly. He's anxious. He's he's quite anxious. Okay, let's move on to the setting and that kind of thing. So it's hard. It's hard to notice people, but you can change. You can be a positive influence on that person. And just and just if you if they open up, if you're lucky enough that they open up to you, then you can feed into that and uh, maybe ask them what you know, when they feel 
mm-hmm. that they're going through an episode or something that watch what they would like you to do. So you're on hand to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, again, the book is called The Other Side, A Memoir of Hope in the Midst of Depression. Uh, it is available the 23rd of November. Uh, Neil, how can people get their hands on the book? How can people stay up to date with the work that you're doing and, and find you? Yeah, so my book will be on Amazon on the 23rd and other online platforms. And it will be through my website as well. I'll have a book page, neilkelders.com. And my handles on Insta, LinkedIn, and Facebook are Arneal Kelders. So, as I said, no more masking, guys. It's uh, what you see is what you get. <laughs> awesome. This has been uh, a real treat, Neil. It was so nice to meet you. And uh, uh, big thanks for, for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and chat with us. No, I really appreciate it. It's, it's great. And it was a good discussion. And uh, me talking again has allowed me to open up and, and uh, relieve some pressure as well. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, we we hope you keep on talking and uh, keep inspiring others to to talk as well. Thank you. We'll do this. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.